another episode of escape from plan a this is uh teen and jess jess how's it going it's cold oh it's yeah cold you, atmospheric river uh, yeah is it as intense as the news reports have said it was it was it was something else yeah i've never i don't think i've ever seen anything quite like it but it has stopped uh so it's bright and sunny it's just it's just oh, chilly good. um i guess i can't complain too much about that to someone on the east coast but it's it's like i'm on i'm bundled under a blanket and it's it's mm. it is chilly it's i mean like it's chilly in new 40s. york it's always chilly in new york in the winter but it's been a it's been a, like a weirdly mild winter but oh okay you, yeah we got we got all you, the water no yeah but you would st- well it's raining it rains too you would still hate it but yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah i've for, been for there new york winter it hasn't been as brutal as some of the ones we've had in the past where uh, um like it's actually painful to be outside De- you know oh been- yeah that sucks does does yeah. that mean you guys are like speeding speeding through the, the snow drift phase and now you're on the icy slush phase no you know what? it's not gone below freezing uh seriously as far as i've yeah I, i've not seen well over thanksgiving was it thanksgiving or christmas that it was like super fucking cold uh Oh, Christmas. Sorry. Christmas was like insanely cold, but then two thirds of the country was under that polar vortex thing and it Mm -hmm. got down to like 15 degrees, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But other than that freak incident that affected like most of the country. um, Yeah, it's been like in the I would say coldest has been upper 30s and Mm -hmm. usually it's like mid 40s. Oh, okay. It's like super. I mean, that's cold for L.A. for sure. Yeah. Um, but over here, that's, uh, that's, it's been a really mild winter. Okay. All right. Weird. Right. Yeah. Well, that's the weather for, that's the weather update for. <laughs> Shit's weird, yo. That's it the weather weird. update. <laughs> that's the weather update. Shit's weird. Um, we were talking. Okay. So this episode, we're going to talk about, um, I guess just that it was, for me, it was the cultural, we're going to talk about cultural appropriation. And for me, it was a confluence of things that got me thinking about this topic a lot, which is something I'm very interested in because I just don't think, you know, you have like these diehard defenders of it who say that it's just a, you know, cultural appropriation is just a left wing dysphemism, which I learned is the opposite of euphemism. It's a left wing dysphemism for, you know, what is just like this cultural sharing and, you know, the you know sort of just saying like all culture and all art and all customs should be freely exchangeable without any barriers or friction and that's you know the 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 that that that's the ideal and then on the other end of it i think they're wrong and on the other end of it are these people um and i think this is this has actually become a bit of a boba lib- liberal tr- trope which is to say that cultural appropriation my my dress my culture is not your prom dress uh, you know, white people are always stealing our culture and it must be stopped. And, you know, only Asian people can cook Asian food, things like this. I think that's also wrong. And I'm not trying to take a centrist position here. Like it's kind of wrong, but it's kind of right. I just yeah, we're going to articulate an actual actionable position here, not just yeah. not just reaction. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, and I think, you know, I don't want to get stuck on the term cultural appropriation because I think that isn't even a great term, but at least we know what we're 
you know, kind of in the neighborhood of what we're talking about. But of course, this is kicked off by Gwen Stefani claiming that she's Japanese. <laughs> what a retard. Oh, God. Absolute mor- moronic shit. Um, yeah. Uh, I gotta say, 2023 has been has been pretty good so far because uh, I, I got sick over Christmas and then I just didn't tune in to um, I didn't like I didn't open Twitter I didn't read I didn't read the news it was just all it was just all like books and just the good parts of social media like watching YouTube food videos, <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, and then like and then I get pulled back in and it's it's like oh fuck I. I resent this. I resent getting pulled back in. Oh, but you I mean had, to the to the Twitter shit? To uh, yeah, it's just uh, I think someone tagged me. Maybe it was you or someone else. Like, no, not blaming you or anything. It's just I just I read it and like just like from that very familiar like anger bubble starts percolating up and it's like ah shit, I got it. I got to pot this out. Right. I got. Right. I got to let that bubble out. Um, well, yeah. Well, okay. So let's go into. Let's start with the Gwen Stefani thing. So, sure. from what I understand, we'll I didn't go there. Uh, that's the baseline here. We'll start there, and then we'll move to something much more interesting. Yeah, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, yeah. Which is, I guess, the the Malcolm Gladwell interview <clears throat> of Rick Rubin about his new book, um, which I own. I bought it. I bought it. I, the first book I ever bought an advanced copy of, and uh, haven't not. I've read a little bit of it. Haven't really gotten through it, but. I love Rick Rubin. I think he's amazing. But I do think, and I think you'd agree, right? That in that interview, the way they talk about cultural borrowing and influence uh, does not, in my, I don't think it was a very good treatment of this issue of cultural appropriation, for which Rick Rubin is a very central character. Yes. In the um, history of cultural appropriation, namely the the creation of white hip hop. <laughs> Yeah, I'm. I'm not that familiar with his. I, I know the name, of course, and I know um, like some of the some of the acts and names that he's he's been behind over the years. So you can you can definitely step in for that. But like, yeah, it was an infuriating conversation, and it's easy when it's infuriating just dismiss it as a bad conversation or just say like that's stupid and dismiss it. I think the way that they were wrong was actually extremely illuminating. So yeah. it is really so for me, you know, uh, for everyone, right? Your gut instinct is simply just tune out, dismiss it, and then move on. I think sometimes um, it is good to just really dig in and think through it, and you come to some really you, you can come to a better understanding of of uh, of your own gut instinct. Actually, I think your gut instinct is more. Um, it's it's wiser than it seems at first. It just you need to catch up to it. Uh, yeah, and and I I would think that you and I share this in that I I do have a gut instinct uh, revulsion at some aspects <clears throat> of what what it, what could be called cultural appropriation. I find I I always found at some level I'm not saying the whole thing, but I always found the Beastie Boys a little bit repulsive. Yes, um, and I found Eminem a little bit repulsive, and those are the two preeminent examples of white hip-hop or white rap i'm not even you know but i'm not sure beastie boys is hip-hop but um you know i think that that was largely vindicated because then you got a you know a whole string of these white rappers that came after them like macklemore etc and i you know it just seems that white hip-hop really wasn't a great idea even if it reached some level of you know there were some highs i guess and Maybe there were some decent tracks cut, but overall, I think the project of white people doing hip hop was a pretty bad idea. 
I mean, <laughs> it fizzled out. Yeah. Largely, the successes in the money that exchanged hands, a, a, a lot of money uh, went all kinds of ways in that whole era, but it largely died out. So if the test is time, then time has has definitively said that this does not hold artistic merit, uh, lasting artistic merit. So it's actually kind of poignant that he's talking about the, the the way he's talking about appropriation, inspiration, et cetera. It's kind of poignant in light of the fact that a lot of his major pro- projects will not be remembered as fondly as he would probably like in the in the coming years. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's why, to an extent, and it Ruben negates his been... point. It negates yeah. it. it I, okay, I won't say it necessarily negates it, but it, it adds it adds a subtext to it that I think he's not he's not quite grasping yet. Um, because he's like, okay, just to just to lay it out. Uh, what we're talking about is a podcast that Rick Rubin did with Malcolm Gladwell. Um, the guy who did uh, well, what um, What's Malcolm? Like uh, yeah, Blink. Um, mm-hmm. The Wisdom of the Masses guy, the pop mm-hmm. psychology, pop history guy, uh, barely needs an introduction for most people. But I mean, I enjoy his a lot of his work. I think his 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 podcast, um, Broken Record, is actually really good. Um, uh, just so we'll we'll put that in the show notes. Of course, it is worth listening to, and it's in its entirety. But we're which just, is a which, but just just that's a joint project between him and Rick Rubin. So that Rick Rubin's often the host as well. Oh, okay. uh, it's one of the few oh, then- times actually that Rick Rubin is the guest on it. Okay. Okay. Then I'm thinking of a different podcast than Mal- like Malcolm Gladwell did his own podcast. I was I was like obsessed with it a few years ago. The name escapes me. Um, but he just digs into like my like yeah, minor. Go on, I'll forgotten. look it up. But go on. Yep. Yeah. Um. So we'll put in the show notes. Um. And we're going to be referencing it a lot. So if you need to pause it here and go check that out and then come back, that's probably a good idea because I don't think we have enough time to like at, like contextualize all the stuff we're going to be pulling out from that from that interview. His um, podcast is called Revisionist <laughs> History. That's the one. Yeah, that's a really interesting podcast, actually. Uh, I know he's a bit of a controversial figure, but I personally really enjoyed that one. I learned a lot, uh, to be fair, to be very fair to him. I, I agree. Um, and I think, you know, and I think, I know there's a lot of Malcolm Gladwell haters. I don't like Mal- Mal- Malcolm Gladwell particularly much, but I would say that um, a lot of the things that I've heard from him, it's like at least worth listening to, if not just to understand like why you don't agree or what, you know, yes. like, like how would you poke a hole or rebut what he's saying? Because I do think that he at least presents it in a way uh, that encourages critic, like a critique. Yeah. You know, it, it it's a pleasant listen. You know, I mean, the bar is so low these days, especially yes. especially in the era of social media, where a lot of people, they're not actually stating a position. They're really just being mad about another person, without a person's take or something, without actually stating a position. You need to state that position in order to even have a substance of rebuttal to it. So in Malcolm, it's a lot, and you'll even see this in journalism, right? It, it, things are implied, Right, especially I mean, we po- we talk a lot about this in like like China coverage, right? Not, no one actually outright says we need to we need to nuke China into the ground, but it'll be a million. It'll be it'll mean the same thing just by a million different cuts, right? No one's outright saying that. If you claim that they're saying that, they would be the first to jump. Like, of course, I would never say that. I'm like, well, why would you say all this other shit then? So it's it's a really slippery game. So it is refreshing that Malcolm at least you know he states a case. 
very clearly, and I think he does a good job presenting uh, presenting his personal position in that, and then and then states a states his own preferred conclusion. Um, and that's easy to rebut if you if you just have a different bag of uh, information or a different opinion on it. It's it's easy. So I appreciate that perspectives like that are out there. <clears throat> yeah. So uh, jumping right in, do you want to start with the Gwen Stefani kerfuffle? Uh, sure. Um, wait, hold on. Do you, on your end, just real quick, just check? Are you? Do you still see your waveform and everything I looks do. okay? Okay, yes. great. All right. No okay. Um, okay. Yeah. So, so the Gwen Stefani thing, um, you know, it's, there's not much to it, but she was, there was an interview and I think the interviewer was actually Filipina American. Yeah. Yes. And so she had, <laughs> she did an interview with Gwen Stefani and Gwen Stefani said, you know, I think I'm actually Japanese. <laughs> yeah. And it, she said it in a hippy dippy way where she was just basically saying like spiritually, she's very connected to yeah. Japanese culture. And I think this is probably part of a continuum from her Harajuku girls days and, um, you know, her love of Japanese kawaii culture and uh, all that stuff. And in street street fashion, streetwear, and uh, I don't know. And this really bothered the interviewer who felt that this was kind of overstepping a boundary, which I kind of think is true. I don't think it's like a punishable offense, but I'm just saying it's it's just. Do you know like when people like this just was just happening to me on a call with this? You know, I'm, I'm dealing with something at work, and there's just this person who just. She puts her own foot in her own mouth all the time, you know, <laughs> and and it's like it's not punishable, you know, like none of this is like a formal offense. But in my mind, I'm like, why do you say these things on, you know, like there's no need to say this stuff. That's what I mean. It's like I just felt it was distasteful and, you know, maybe insensitive, but whatever. She's she's Gwen Stefani. She's like this rich, famous white woman who really doesn't give a shit you know <laughs> and so then uh there's a whole social media furor over this and you know people are dunking on her and i just have you found that there isn't a clear and obvious distinction you know like a lot on a lot of issues like affirmative action or, or anti-asian violence it's pretty easy to draw a line between the asian american people who are taking different sides on it like what differentiates them. But when it comes to this kind of stuff, I find that it's difficult to make that distinction. I don't know who's going to be mad about this and who's going to dismiss it as inconsequential. Um, I haven't particularly thought of thought about that, um, mm -hmm. but you might be, you very well might be right. There is, there are definitely contingents of people. Like I'll see the same kinds of people, uh, like the same names or something pop up. Like if it's appropriation, then the media and the creative class will be all over that. Right. And it's pretty easy to see why. Like for them, there is a there's a very personal and financial, like an economic motivation for that. I'm not even saying a lot of people dismiss that, like, oh, they're just looking out for their bottom line. I think that's a valid that's a, actually a very valid reason to be to object to something here. Like their position, their livelihoods are are actually at stake if this if this whole conversation goes the wrong the go, go the wrong way. I think that's very valid to try to defend your position on that. Um I think we have a weird. You mean to extent to that it's a business thing, like yeah, like why okay. shouldn't they be fighting for their livelihoods? Mm -hmm. 
right? Are we yeah. saying that, okay, it's a kind of a, a really strange thing that uh, kind of a strange mental like uh, game where we just sort of assume that the people least affected by the, the issue are the ones that somehow have the most like moral credibility to speak on it. Like they're the most impartial about it. Well, um, when it comes to your point about livelihood, I mean, in this case, I, I, I'm not sure if that presents itself as much as say like the issues with, with food appropriation, right? Like where yeah, we're it's, talking it's about much softer. selling food. It's much softer, but you know, to the extent that a lot of like minority creators, we've heard this many, many times, right? There is a particular lane that they are pressured to occupy to have a livelihood. And often that means trading in artifacts of like <clears throat> the motherland culture. Right, they are intercessionary. They're intermediaries between a primarily uh, non non uh, minority, the majority, which is primarily white people, and the the source land culture. For right? sure, if I you, see it all the time. Like, in that I, space, I, I see just to, just to illustrate what you're talking about in concrete terms. I mean, I've seen like if you go on any of these like daytime uh, talk shows, you know, you'll you'll often see. Uh, you know, a young Korean American person s- teaching people how to roll, how to rap mandu on TV, oh, and no. saying some kind of like, you know, my this is my grandma did this, my grandma's recipe or whatever. Who knows if it's true? But the point is that there is a push to sell this stuff. There's a push to market uh, Korean food and to have there be a marker of authenticity. To say that, you know, I'm not just anybody who decided to sell Korean food. I'm a Korean American person and I know what authentic home style Korean food should taste like since I grew up in a Korean family. And I want that. I want to retain that market edge. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't want to see someone who didn't come from a Korean family try to sell this <laughs> stuff before I do. And I, I agree. I do think that's valid. I don't I don't really see a problem with that. Yeah, so I'm just responding to the to the kind of knee jerk reaction. Like it's a it's a tired, it's a very long running argument. I I get that a lot of people are kind of kind of just want to, just don't want to hear about it anymore. Uh, but I think it's actually worth taking seriously, like really seriously, um, and not just not not just resort to blanket, you know, like oh, you know, dismiss it as oh, that's just you know, white people, white peopling or something. Like it's worth it's worth taking seriously and i think that's what we're trying to do here yeah and and Um, it's also not our personal interest right it's not like i benefit from this other person trying to sell mandu on the internet but on the other hand i see no reason why that person shouldn't be selling it and why they shouldn't be marketing their version of it as more authentic than a white person who sells it i'm glad they're doing that it's it's not in my personal interest because i'm i don't have any commercial stake in that and i probably won't buy the mandu over so i don't really care but uh, more power to them is my feeling i mean i, I my, i'm like just a, on a little tangent like my parents did not cook very much when i was uh, when i was growing up and we were the only ones in uh they my mom and my dad were the only ones in their fa- respective families to have immigrated so i didn't actually grow up with a ton of like homemade food period much less like homemade korean food right um so you know as an adult you know i i i you know, I, I was tired of eating out. I wanted to like take care of myself, um, to really, and like the things that I wanted to eat were like, was like tended to be Asian food of all kinds. Um, so I went and tried to find people out there who were cooking like this so I could learn from them. 
So I'm really appreciative that I found a lot of like a lot of um, creators who were sharing their recipes, sharing techniques, um, sharing history, and all of that. I um, see. So I mean, it's me as so, an so Asian you were, person. You did consider yourself part of their market. Yeah, the absolutely. I happily and, and you were I bought their books. By that, right? Yeah, I followed them on Instagram. I smashed that like on their YouTube. Like I, I did what I could to support them because I pre- personally appreciated uh, the work that they were doing here. Yeah, you were um, a big fan of the um, the the David Chang magazine, if I remember. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, was and people who peach? were Mom, uh, peach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lucky Peach. Lucky Peach, yeah. Yeah, I have like almost mm-hmm. all of their issues too. Um, so I just as a personal token of appreciation, I really respected and appreciated the work that they were doing. Um, personally, forget like a, some bigger culture, like culture project. Um, but also like, you know, this, if we are all here, we deserve to have these heritages understood as part of this country's culture too. Um so if th- this is a like culture is never static, right? It's it's always growing, it's always changing. This is just another iteration in that. Um, so so long as so long as people who have the right uh, um, understanding, uh, the right motivation to do this, I see zero problem with you know. Uh, I I I I like uh, I like the idea that there are more cuisines being accepted as uh, as part of as part of American culture. I don't even see this as like, I, I don't know. I think I'm rambling a little bit, but, um, well, let's, let's, no, I, I get what you're saying. I think let's bring it back to the, the issue, the, 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 the issue of trying to put a rule down around outsiders trying to gain, get into the game. Yeah. Okay. That's a, that's a good starting point. Yeah, well, I'm saying, you know, I think there's a distinction, right, between because I see this argument laid a lot online, which is like, what, so white people just shouldn't be allowed to do Asian food? And I don't think that I think that's a that argument is a bit of a bait. It's it's bait to get you to accept the terms that what we're arguing about here is a rule or a prohibition. There's no, there's no, there can't be, this can't be litigated. Then this can't be legislated. The mental space that something like what Gwen Stefani did, that it, the mental space that it occupies in my head is exactly the same as if, um, you invite someone into your home. Um, it's not family. It's a, it's, uh, it's, you know, someone you're comfortable inviting into your home, but not, you know, you're not intimate with, and they, and of course, you as the host, you're like, oh, please make yourself comfortable. Um, you know, welcome to my home. And they sit down and they just put their sloppy ass feet all over your coffee table. Just put it up. They, they act like they, they actually make themselves at home. Like they treat it like <laughs> yeah. it's their house. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like you're laughing because you get what I'm saying here, right? No, like yeah, no, because I'm thinking. Of, sorry, I'm just thinking of this scene in about a boy where the the little kid calls up Hugh Grant out of the blue and he was like what are you calling me for he's like well you said I'll see you later (laughs) (laughs) and it's later so yeah like just taking that invitation too literally yeah I mean Uh, there's a there's a social there's a social understanding here and trying to make it a rule makes it way too harsh and like like they're like there is no there is no social understanding about this process here. You are the host. You are obligated to provide a welcoming and you also as a host, you can't be like, you're supposed to stand in that fucking corner and never leave. You're not allowed to use the silverware, don't use the bathroom. Uh like that's the spot. You're like 
you're being a terrible host if you do that. Yeah, it's the opening. It's the opening move of let's be mutually respectful here. I'm going to start with the place of of being a a gracious host, and then I will expect you to follow my footsteps in becoming a gracious guest. You know. Yes. So it's it involves a mutual understanding. It's a mutual dance, so social dance, so to speak. Mm -hmm, Um, Being a good host and being a good guest are not they're not antagonistic relations. You're, the host does not lose anything by being a good host, and a get good guest does not lose anything by by that. Um, it's just everyone knows what the role is that they are playing in this situation. Mm-hmm. What Stefani did is saying, like, no, this is my coffee table. You said, you said I could make myself at home, and decided to just get in the kitchen and start like messing around, you know, reorganizing your silverware or something. Right? Yeah, That's and because like claiming- everyone, because she's famous and. Uh, you know, she's Gwen Stefani, you know, she's probably had everyone kiss her ass her whole life. And she's uh, at some point probably have forgotten her manners. Yeah, <laughs> I think, you know, I mean, what I th- I mean, she's just being a like, let's not give this too much seriousness, right? Uh, like, she's just being a ditzy, a ditzy, yeah. you know, hippy dippy artist, you know, a love and light, and and I, I'm just just so full of you know appreciation for Japanese people, blah blah blah. Right? She's just running her mouth and doing it in a very dramatic, attention grabbing way, right? Um, so getting that out of the way, what what was kind of interesting is why she's it's like why she said what she said. Uh, just thinking through that is kind of an interesting process, at least to me. Like, why did she say she she had, like, that, you know, she, she didn't settle for, you know, um, I just like Japanese culture. You know, this was my yeah, tribute said, to I what I am. I am Japanese. I am Japanese. Yeah. I don't think this occurs to most people to to frame it that way, to even have the inclination to claim uh, to claim that they are something they very clearly are not in order to have some legitimacy. Uh, like what was interesting is like she described, she goes into her own like background, right? She's saying like she was raised, she's basically a Gen Xer from Southern California, like Orange County. Um at, with you know middle cl- you know middle class dad who went overseas on business and brought back you know uh, like you know went to Japan a lot on business which was common in that time um, like why was like just being a Southern Californian not a valid identity right because in that sense like she and I uh, don't actually have that much different right like if you grow up in if you grow up in these big metropolitan cities you are exposed to a lot of different you know cultures um it, you know it's part of the fabric of you of your understanding of your place in, on the on the earth um it forms your likes and dis it, it shapes your likes and dislikes um like why was that not an, adi- an identity that you know she could claim she had to claim that she was japanese like kind of weird i mean I don't think it occurs to very many people other than like a certain group of like white people. It implies a certain hollowness about the sense of racial identity. I, I think it's also a sort of cheapness. Like if, th- if the stuff that your dad brought back from his, uh, from his business trips is actually enough to like racially transpose you, like, like you don't actually have a very stable conception of what like a racial identity means. At some level, I think, uh, 
Yeah, you know what? There's so many places we could go with this. Originally, I was going to say, okay, let's get into that Al Jazeera article, response article, where they actually went to Japan and, and asked people what they thought, and it turns out Japanese people don't really care. That's a whole other topic. They did that with the Chipao thing, where, where CNN and, and others went to China, China, interviewed people in China to ask them their opinions, and they were like, see, real Chinese don't aren't mad about this. And in this case, like real Japanese or like, quote, real Asian people don't care about this. So Asian Americans are not fit to speak and are not fit to represent. Yeah, so, it's right in the, it was right in the, we'll link that, we'll link that one too. Um, yeah, we'll link that. You should read uh, it. If you it haven't. means basically saying like actual Japanese people don't care. So we can easily dismiss this as, as just a Western delusion. Right, which they mean is just Asian Americans need to shut the fuck up. And, yeah. So uh, I mean, basically, they went to the Japanese people who are not affected by this issue, who are least connected to the problem. Of course, they say they say it's not a big deal. Although there, I mean, that article is easy to rebut actually because it's so intellectually dishonest. Yes. So there's they went to the people least affected to talk about this issue, and then used that to talk about how the people who are mo- closest to that can be safely ignored. And even when they talk to the Japanese people in Japan, um, not a single one of them said that they saw Gwen Stefani as Japanese. They, yeah, simply, they just said they, they were flattered say, and they're amused. That's all. Yeah, that, that this woman, this famous, you know, this famous pretty woman uh, had a fascination with some, you know, aesthetic elements of Japanese culture, a subculture in Japan, by the way. It's not like everyone in Japan is all over the Harajuku aesthetic from the mid-aughts. You know what? Fuck it. Let's just get into it because it is so – it is such an – if you really parse that article, it is very – it makes me quite angry because when they said that this is largely – in fact, this is actually just a Western preoccupation. So Asian Americans are mad about this, you know, don't – are not representing Asians well. Well – that's the whole point, isn't it? It is a Western preoccupation. Asian Americans yeah. are Westerners. Yes. So I don't why understand would why, why would you, you go, go to, to Japan and conclude that Asian Americans, the, 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 the Filipina who was interview Filipina American woman who was interviewing Gwen Stefani sh- needs to shut the fuck up because people in Japan don't have a problem with it. There's two levels at which I'm very fucking pissed about this. Number one is let's not pretend Japan is some sort of like open uh oh, open God, source yeah. culture okay japan is one of the most xenophobic exclusionary cultures on earth mm-hmm. to the extent that even if you are ethnically japan but you don't live in japan or were not born in japan they have a separate word for you this is a country that has twice closed its gates and ethnic full japanese people were locked out yeah twice yeah. Like in the I 1600s, mean, they just slammed the door shut. So Japanese, like samurai, were overseas. They could not go back home. That's how that's how harsh it was. There are ethnic Koreans who have been in Japan for hundreds of years, and they are not eligible for Japanese citizenship. Yeah. So if we wanted to test this out to its actual to where it logically should be, right? If the Japan let's Gwen Stefani is not claiming to just appreciate Japanese culture; she's claiming to be Japanese. Let's see how easy, if she wants to act on that, let's see how easy it is for her to get Japanese citizenship. Yes, and, or, be, or be accepted as, or Japanese, be as by Japanese by Japanese people because even, even ethnically Japanese people cannot achieve that. Yeah. So, and, and certainly, uh, you know, some like people who are racially closer to the Japanese, such as Chinese and Koreans who are East Asian, 
uh, like just just read up about Zainichi Koreans and their experience living in Japan. It is a very very exclusionary culture that is that does not accept foreigners, and that's how the relationship with Japan began in the first place. Was was Matthew Perry in the black ships forcing forcing it open? Yes, you know, there were there were there were very few countries in the world that openly murdered Christian. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that this is a bad thing, but I'm just saying that, <laughs> like, uh, you know, J- Japan is the place where Christian missionaries were just straight up murdered, right? So, let's the Al Jazeera article just completely washes Japanese culture and treats it as a non-entity. By saying like, well, we talked to a couple Japanese people and they didn't seem to have a problem with Gwen Stefani. Okay, that's just such a glib, shallow, bullshit uh, uh, characterization of Japanese culture to begin with. Okay, that's the first. Second is this idea that, uh, well, I was already getting into this, but the second is what I was saying before, which is that um, that this whole Asian Americans being upset about this can be dismissed as simply a Western preoccupation. Well, that's exactly it. Like I said, we, this is a Western preoccupation. We are living in the West. The issue, the, as you said, the problem exists here in America, not in Japan. So why would you go to Japan to ask about it? Exactly. And, and it's and it's because this un, this belief that Asian Americans, every time we say something that goes against the grain of what um, a mainstream journalist or whatever once takes as the accepted Western doctrine, right? The second we go against that, that is attributed to us being Asian. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and not Asian in the sense that I'm Asian and, and therefore like uh, an Asian person in America. No, it's like the residual Asian. <laughs> it's this. Yeah. The, the like, original sin, the taint just cannot, you cannot shake it. It's, yeah. I mean, you go get, you see it. And if there's any kind of political discourse, you disagree. And, and, and slightly what you're saying, and, and what you're saying, because it goes against the grain and it's because you're Asian and therefore it should not be, we should not try and reconcile what you're saying with the dominant Western narratives because you're not even saying something Western. You're not. You're not from here. You're, you're not speaking from here. Rest- so, like, we can just dismiss what you're saying. Yeah. And I think that's completely wrong in this case because I think that Asian American cultural appropriation by whites and others is an edge case where we can both see. It's easier to see why it should be allowed than it is in the case of maybe this is a good point to transition. Someone like Rick Rubin essentially profiting off black hip hop and in fact promoting white hip hop artists to become much more commercially successful than the than than the source culture from which he took it and so i think in that case i think in when when we talk about the way white people through um record companies which are white institutions um profited off black music and elevated white artists over black musicians is not something that Westerners easily dismiss. If you bring that up with a white liberal, they get uncomfortable and they won't defend it. And even in that, you know, we'll talk about the interview, but that's not something that Rick Rubin talks about. If you, if you pay attention to Rick Rubin and I love Rick Rubin, I love, I follow him a lot. I love the things he has to say about the creative process or whatever, but in this regard, he is oddly silent and I think he knows because it's a very, I don't think he has a lot of smart things to say about it. And I think 
you know, I think that he associates himself a lot more these days with Red Hot Chili Peppers and Johnny Cash rather than Beastie Boys and Eminem because he knows that it's much less problematic to talk to, you know, a John Frusciante about his guitar playing because there isn't as much of an issue with the Red Hot Chili Peppers being direct thieves or appropriators of black music versus the Beastie Boys, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So I don't see a lot of Beastie Boys talk uh, by Rick Rubin these days, even though that's really, you know, his original act. It's not Red Hot Chili Peppers. It was the Beastie Boys. And then, of course, Johnny Cash, where you don't, you know, that just as a country music guy, um, even though actually that still has roots in black music um, and blues, It's not talked about as by. I think it's more accepted as a pure white art form, you know, for better or for worse. There's a stronger claim. I mean, American like white folk music is its own genre with deep historical ties. Lots of cross blend with uh, like like uh, blues, uh, etc. But you know, there's at least a stronger historical claim than hip hop. Yeah, yeah. Um, but let's get. I don't know if you're if you want to talk about the substantive things about cultural appropriation that make me uncomfortable and you know you brought up this issue of like market protection and like i said more power to people who want to just like asian restaurateurs or whatever who want to say like look if you're not if you're not like cooking your actual like family's lineage food then it's not you're kind of an outsider more power to them okay Mm -hmm. but that's not my interest and i think one of the things that is I mean, a problem. I take that up as simply the lowest level of uh, legitimacy here. Like, I think that's an intuitive right. understanding of uh, of um, legitimate place in society that everyone can understand. Uh, you would take a lot to shake that. It gets a little bit more complicated when we inch past that point, though. Yeah, and I well, and and to speak a little bit more to this because I think you're right. It is. It is. Um, it's a valid thing. I would say, as you know, I think Asian people, uh, by on average, and I'm not talking about everyone, of course, you can never do that, but I think we can talk in a sort of like average generality, right? Don't you think that mm-hmm. we tend to be a little bit less protective about our cultural things? Then you see with other groups in America who have learned over time to be very protective of it, right? So, um, to this day, I think Italian Americans are very protective of their food, of their culture, and they don't like outsiders coming in and trying to trying to do it. I think Black people are the same. I hmm. think uh, I don't know. That's that's a tricky one because I would have actually said the opposite, but that you know that's. That's hard to compare just because of the different histories. Like- well, well, I mean, sorry, I mean it. Th- let's think about it this way: that the eth- that the idea, the ethic of that, is not mm-hmm. as questioned, right? Like, I don't think this is something that. I mean, I'm sure a lot of Italians are fine with it or whatever. But what I'm saying is, when they're not fine with it, like people don't jump all jump down their throats for it, right? Like, it, it, it's fine. It, it's a thing where it's it's almost funny. And accepted to see Italian people being salty about a bunch of white people trying to do pizza or trying to do Italian food. And to mock, you know, there's being such a thing as derivative 
white people suburban Italian food. This ain't real gravy, you know that kind of thing, okay. right? Um, you know, we see it in uh, mob movies. We see it in you know, you know what I'm saying. Like, what I'm saying is that it we don't question that that's just like something that people feel, and it's fine. You know, I don't think we have a problem with the idea that there are Italian Americans who like you know look down on the idea that non-italians would try to do italian food or whatever it that just is what it is but i do think mm-hmm. that with asians i think less and less so and i'm happy to see that but that we do still feel this belief that like we should be open books and everything that we have should be shared and we should be happy and grateful when other people want to take our stuff that just yeah. means that they like us. I have they, no idea how it compares have. with the Italian American or or you know French or whatever. Um, but I I have definitely seen that. There's a there's a kind of outrage just at the idea of gatekeeping. Right. Um, that, okay. Yeah. I don't mean to say Italian specifically. I guess I mean that there is a general <laughs> ethic out here in America mm-hmm. that that you can you can and should be protective of your roots. Mm-hmm. And and whatever group you are, and I think Asians are, are are late to the game, but we are learning, and that the process of us becoming a little bit more, or maybe much more protective of our uh, cultural identity against non Asians trying to come into it, is not a particularly Asian thing. In fact, I think we we have always been behind. We're the latecomers to that. We're I the think latecomers the- to this. The only so people who are we didn't have to develop protective. a skin to it because it's just de- the desirability just wasn't there. It's a right. very very recent thing where there is even any outsider interest in any of these in any of these cultural you know artifacts. Yeah, I think for some reason for the longest time, and maybe it's because Asians felt invisible or neglected in in the cultural landscape that we wanted to invite people to come and participate. <laughs> you know, inside Asian communities, inside Asian cultural rituals or whatever, you know, you know, we, we, and, and a lot of times, let's face it, a lot of times it was trying to invite white people to come do it. And Mm -hmm. that really dominated, um, uh, I think Asian American thinking for a long time and all of our works involved. How did we, how did we get white people to come and participate with us? How did we get them to be interested in us? And whenever they showed interest, it just made us very excited. And the, and so anyone who felt protective and say, wait, wait, why are you inviting white people into this? Like, what is the point of this? Was immediately sidelined because the need for attention and visibility outweighed, you know, any of those concerns. But I think actually we were behind the ball because now I think we're starting to see like, wait, the big pro- the bigger problem in America that most people in America are 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 uh, uh, aware of are conscious of is the need to set boundaries. It is it is actually the need to set boundaries, not to constantly flash your lights and say please come, please come, please come, but that in fact once they find out that you have marketable things, you have valuable things that they might want. It's time to be a little bit more cautious and to start setting up boundaries. And like you said, we're not talking about writing laws. We're not talking about strict legal prohibitions from saying like we were not going to allow non-Asian people to sell Asian food in restaurants. It's to say that we're just going to call it out. 
we're just going to put up a resistance to it. That's all. We're not saying like we're going to we're going to go shut down the restaurants or whatever. We're just saying we're going to make fun of you. We're going to we're going to say that it's not authentic. We're going to say that if you really want real food, you got to get it from an Asian rest, an Asian owned restaurant. What's wrong with that? Isn't that just called marketing? Yeah. It's it, I mean, it's it's the pursuit of uh, of quality too for one thing. Right. Um, like I remember like in the early days of Instagram, I followed this uh, Chinese American um, home cook. I just really liked her stuff. It was it was like simple homemade stuff. So perfect for a beginner or someone who doesn't have a lot of time to put together a good meal uh, pretty quickly. And she would get an unreasonable amount of uh, of shit for some reason. I have no idea why. Um Maybe it's just the audience or something peculiar about the the Instagram audience or something. But like she put together like a, a like a recipe that's just steamed tofu with like, you know, a soy sauce, sesame oil, scallion uh, like topping, a really basic recipe. And like and like someone would comment like, well, I don't have access to soy sauce. What can you didn't suggest any substitutions? What the fuck do you substitute soy sauce for? Like, what can you even do? And she replied, like, if you don't have soy sauce, like, it's just not going to be like it's just not going to be this dish like you can try something else but like i can't i'm not going to help you there like figure that shit out yourself um and they got really pissy at her uh and like what was interesting is uh, like a bunch of chinese people jumping in like you're not being very accommodating you're not being very welcoming yeah, well, fuck or, off. like you're not work you're not you're not working with her to try to find like it's literally tofu and soy sauce and you're saying like like 50% of the necessary ingredients to bring out this flavor to re- to create this flavor is not there. What do you do? Like <laughs> I like I I need I need to make Drive pasta a little further. Water. That's what you do. Yeah. Um and the endless need to like keep bending over backwards and the she eventually like grew a real backbone. She's like, "No, fuck you. This is my recipe. You don't like it? Go fuck off. Do something else." Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good. Um so and it's and it's uh it's it's just it's it's maintaining quality assurance, right? Um, so I noticed that with the appropriation debate, we don't have a lot of issues with outsiders who do the work, right? Like Fuchsia Dunlop, right? That's the scholar of like Chinese traditional cuisine, right? Uh, she was on David Chang's show. I enjoy I enjoyed reading her books quite a bit. Um, and to cut, compare and contrast, like recent like kerfuffles, right? Um, that. I uh, remember we did that pod a long time ago about that that um, Chinese the clean Chinese food joint. Oh yeah, in yeah. New York, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, Perfect example. Yeah, tra- Perfect like example. that that was trashed. Um, like obviously, we like called it out, and you know the proof was in the pudding. That thing closed within a year of its opening. Good, Good. right? So like because it is a racist endeavor. You know why? Because. I think the based on test- ignorance, based on lack of respect for the cuisine, and you think your product is going to stand up, like be something good if you if you go in with that mind space. I and also don't think just so. just think about it. Like just think about like wine, right? Which is I think much more of a you know, uh, uh, much more deeply appreciated in America. You know, people don't. There's no sense of like, um, oh, you know, this is an American-made wine, which is as good as french wine but you know it doesn't involve all these dirty french people so buy my (laughs) wine and that was the ethic of her restaurant which is like yeah i know you like chinese food the problem is it's chinese and it involves chinese people so i'm going to find a way to get you chinese food but without all the problematic chinese people and that i thought um really warranted 
the angry backlash because that was just pure racism to say we want to take the things that Chinese or Asian people have, but we want to separate them and literally get rid of the Asian people that created it because we hate them and they're dirty. So she deserved all of the fucking hatred, all of the Yelp review bombing, and she deserved to lose all the money that she put into her fucking racist restaurant. And I'm happy she fucking lost money on it and she got her name dragged through the mud online because she fucking deserved it. And if you're Asian and you're on the fence about cultural appropriation and you're not sure how to feel about this, just destroy the idea of cultural appropriation altogether. It's not the issue. The issue is she's a racist. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, and I if don't she think had we paid need to... attention, and if she had actually paid attention to the backlash, she would have put out a better product, and her business might have yeah. had a chance. Yeah, right. I, it's not That's about the... cult, it's it's not really about cultural appropriation in the abstract sense, and we don't need a rule around cultural appropriation. Like you said, do we trust our thinking here? Is she racist? There's a lot of fucking signs to tell me that she's a fucking uh, Manhattan liberal white woman who's a racist against Chinese people. And she was trying to profit off of it. And she should go fuck herself. And if you're on the fence about it because you have some personal rule about cultural appropriation and cultural sharing and you have a view about it, it's irrelevant because it doesn't exist. That's not the issue. There is no like general abstract notion of cultural appropriation around which we can have a consistent uh, you know, rule. It's case by case. Everything's different. It all mm-hmm. depends on the situation. What she did is not what Gwen Stefani did. Yes. It's not the same as what happened with that girl with the cheap hoe thing. It's not the same thing. These are different things. But for whatever reason, because it involves a cultural commodity and it involves a white person using it, we put them under this blanket thing called cultural appropriation. And then we say, let's write a rule around cultural appropriation. Let's have a debate about it. No, yeah. they're not the same thing. I mean, a closer a closer parallel uh, to to that one would be uh, there's just this happened like a year or two ago. Um, a white woman published a book about noodles, like like in oh spite. yeah yeah yeah. Um, you know, so so kind of similar, like not not a scholar, not a person who you know, n- not someone with the standing of say like a Fuchsia Dunlop or or anybody else like that. Uh, but like uh, someone who was aspiring to gain a little bit of clout build a reputation, make a little money off of this. Um, The backlash to her publishing that book was far more muted. And there was a lot of support for even compared to the clean Chinese food joint lady, because it turned out she actually, she went to China. She studied under, she studied under a master. Like she spent years like, like learning this craft. And it turns out like that, like the book was extremely respectful and, and was kind of, and just, you know, she, she walked the walk. So so long as you do that, it seems like we like we didn't have much of a problem with it. Some people really were confused, or like, why were you? Why did this lady get such a huge backlash, but this person doesn't? They're both white women, young white, pretty women. Why? Like because they did it differently. They were different things. Um, so in that in that sense, it was far less about just what the clean Chinese food joint lady was doing was basically deciding that China was irrelevant. China, China and Chinese food are actually, com- I mean, Chinese people are completely irrelevant to her project here. She doesn't need to take anything but the bare minimum of aesthetics and form and apply it to her business. And that's going to be the important thing that carries her. So you're Not- talking about the noodle, the noodle book or the restaurant, the, the restaurant. The I restaurant, forget their right, names. Yep. I forget their names. It's, it's barely important. It's just, it's barely important. Um, yeah. We have the receipts if you really need it. But like, if you've been a long time listener, you, we've, we've covered this. Um, 
Uh, and that's that's I think the part that that really um, and we can link. I think that's a jumping point to Rick Rubin here, right? Stripping like <clears throat> if we say like um, a medium of creation is both form and function, um, then what we call appropriation tends to be a mimicry of the form and a complete disrespect or disavowal or ignorance, sheer ignorance of the function. Possibly, and it, they're, they're possibly, there, there, it could be. Too. It could be the case that. There is a respect for the function, but I think we got to look look for it, right? Like I think yeah. we got to at least analyze it from both perspectives to say is it consistent with the form, like the form, you know, like like when it comes to music, is does it sound like it should? Like are you if you're claiming this as hip hop, you're claiming this as ska or reggae or whatever, does it actually follow like the rules of that? But then be further than that is like I think what you're saying when it comes to function, when it comes to music in, in the context of music is like the sort of like the social, the, the, the sort of like social or political ethic behind that music, which yeah, I think it, there's people in that, like it's not just music. It's any kind of form of cultural practice here. There's tradition, there's history, there's connection to other people across time. And in a in a particular and a and a um, a rootedness in a particular moment of time in a particular place with other people. That's the part that keeps getting forgotten or in like intentionally disregarded in the pursuit of pure of mere form mimicry of form. Uh, so I mean the the pod the 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 Reuben Gladwell pod, <clears throat> they're basically saying the function is actually an impediment. Form is really just it. So they talk about like an creation as a as a purely individual process, right? You take inspiration from the world around you, but then you basically have to do this kind of uh, <clears throat> transmogrification in your head and like outcome something brand new, right? Creation. That's it's in the name. Like it has to be brand new. Um, <clears throat> Uh, it can't be a remix of something. It has to. It has to have some spark of create creativity in it, right? To be to be considered valid. Uh, they see this this these ties to history and to other people as um, blockers. Like it's only it's only a mere bias that you have to overcome if you want to pursue true creativity. True creativity in there is in that sense is very antisocial. Yeah, let's let's set the scene a little bit about this uh, about this Rick Rubin uh, podcast. So, it's um, if you want to, we'll, we'll do a we'll have a link, and it's called it's called Broken Record, right? Is the is the yeah. podcast, which is actually Rick Rubin's own podcast, but he invites Malcolm Gladwell on to interview him himself because Rick Rubin has a book that just came out called um, the I have it here, uh, the Creative Act: A Way of Being, which I kind of recommend. It's kind of a nice little. It's kind of a nice book about the creative process. I'm honestly very curious about what you what you like so much because I this is my first time listening to him. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, I know the name, but like I I don't follow him or anything. Right. It doesn't. I would never guess that this is a person or like a kind of message, a vibe <laughs> mm. that you vibe with. Mm -mm -mm. <laughs> like this is yeah, not this yeah. does not seem like your frequency. Well, okay, because you know. It's interesting. So I think Rick Ru Rick Rubin's like late or almost post career at this point. Like I don't think he's nearly as relevant a producer as he was before, and I don't think he's trying to be. I think he's becoming more of like a 
he's retiring. He's writing his memoirs. He's this is legacy to, at this point. He's yeah, blissing out. He's rich as fuck. He's famous as fuck. He's not wanting for anything in life except bliss. And so he's now he's a TM practitioner, transcendental meditation practitioner. He's becoming a full on hippy dippy guy. Um, he's writing, you know, books where the cover is a circle with a dot on the middle called a way of being he's, he's transcendental. The reason I like him Jess, is because I, I kind of re- personally relate to the quest that he's on in the sense, like as you get older, look, there's, there's a chapter in here called look inward. A lot of this is about getting older and sorting out your internal affairs and kind of withdrawing from the world a little bit. And, and a lot of the bullshit in the world that that younger people get caught up in you know and and just kind of turning inward and and sorting out your own affairs that's why i like him right just because you know he's he's fairly unabashed about the need to do that and i think he's good at it that's why i like him but i think when it comes to the outside world uh and the messy world that we live in that is not conducive to blissing out remember like one of the things that rick rubin talks about all the time is that you know, you've got to find a physical space free from these distractions that prevent you from, you know, metaphy- like almost like metaphysically connecting with the creative energy of the universe. Meaning, come to my Malibu compound. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, like, you know what? You should really be creative. You should have a compound in Malibu where, you know, nobody, no, the paparazzi can't get to you. And you could just sit by the ocean and, you know, whatever. I mean, it's like super fucking, you know, it's it's putting a very nice transcendental wrapper on what essentially is like, you should be a rich white guy in America. <laughs> I mean, that's good advice. Honestly, it is good advice. It, like hard to argue with that. That's, that's, that's yeah. where I'm trying to get. <laughs> exactly. Who doesn't want that? You see what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. But the problem is not everyone can get it. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's the thing is Rick Rubin is an exceptional human being, but he likes... I think the fear, especially for an older person who's lived a super charmed life, is that this is it. This is the peak. It can only get downhill. I'm just going to get older. And then who knows if I believe in like this mystical reincarnation, the chances are going to be your next life is not going to be anywhere near as fucking cool as this one. Mm. Right? So I think in a way he's he's uh, dealing with an existential fear that arises from people who have had all the success and all the money, which is, Oh shit, this ride might be over. And I don't think mm-hmm. I'm going to, I don't know if I'm going to have a winning ticket the next go around. So, and I feel pretty blessed in my life, not to that extent, but still, I think I've have a lot to be thankful for. And so I relate to that to a bit um, to say like, you know, I'm a pretty privileged person in, 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 in in a greater context, like in a bigger context, I am. Rick Rubin is privileged in any context. You know what I mean? Yes. But that's why I like him. Does that make sense, Jess? I, we're getting far from the topic, but I'm just saying, like, why I feel that Rick Rubin is both one of the worst. Um. Uh, is he's one of the worst cultural appropriators out there, but I still really like him. <laughs> Hmm. Well, I mean, I but only in the sense of who he is personally, but what, but his take on this as a political or our, or even our, an artistic matter, I think he's dead wrong, or or he's avoidant. 
Well, he's correct for his particular station in life, right? The thing that Malcolm Gladwell and Rick Rubin go talk about, it's kind of a utopian ideal of cultural exchange, right? It assumes that all culture is on the table. It's accessible in its full form, right? Um, <clears throat> basically like a public resource that can be mined at will. And everyone has an equal shot at benefiting from this, this, uh, this, this process, um, if they can lend, you know, the proper creative muscle to it, right? It's very utopian, and it's the mindset that has worked for them. That has been the world that they knew. Everything on or the, everything on earth was open to them, or you know, crucially, thought was open to them, and they took it anyway, right? Um, they were able to claim it for their own and profit handsomely from it. So it you know the appealing part is like like what a vision that would be right it, a world where where it is as open and free um as all that and and you know we could all we could all live blissed out lives um <clears throat> learning and creating in that environment fact is we don't that's only accessible to a, to a very small number of people I think so I what? think you're right, and I think that that's what I see in Rick Rubin is the existential fear that grips, um, uh, you know, extremely privileged and charmed people uh, who are getting older, and they're this burning need to universalize their experience because mm -hmm. that makes the universe safe for them again. Right, because yeah, that these we were actually it vibing with the actual rules of the universe. It's you haters who right. are out of sync. Right, I'm the one that found the truth, and so if everyone could just be see the world the way I see it, the, or, or or experience it the way I experience it, where I can completely let all my defenses down and stop worrying, and of course I can do that only because I've sequestered myself in a Malibu compound. Right, we don't Correct. talk about. Well, he doesn't connect the two, but it's like that gives him peace of mind, in the sense that, oh my God, we've got we've strayed quite far from the top. But see, this is why I like this topic because I think no, I think we're exactly on topic. I, I think we're about to get to some real real stuff okay. here. Okay, yeah. But I think Keep what going. his fear is, uh, because I understand this fear to an extent, is like if you had a life where you've experienced such enormous amounts of. I don't want to say privilege, but just charm, charm and good luck and fortune and, and enjoyment out of life, then it must be the case that the opposite could be true too in the next go around. You can live a life of just unimaginable horror and, and pain and misery of, 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 a, of a magnitude just as extreme as what he's experienced in the positive. And I think that's a fear that is that will manifest itself uh, that you got to beat back down by committing yourself to the idea that you have found the truth and the universal. And if you can extract that from this highly charmed life, that the universe is friendly to you again. And it's not. It's, it, the universe is not friendly because the opposite exists. And it probably there's a, probably a lot more of the opposite than there is of what he's experiencing, you know. Yeah. So that is why these people sequester themselves into Malibu compounds and then take creative processes and denature them of all the ugly 
uh, violent and human. Um, human processes. The human processes that are absolutely critical to the creation of great art. Misery, hell, torture. This is Renaissance art. That's I mean, the Bible. I, I don't think Rick Rubin has a good answer for... Okay, he wrote a book on the creative process, right? <clears throat> if it's accessible to everyone and everyone did it, he... Uh, he might not have had the means to sequester, to buy and sequester himself in a giant Malibu compound, right? There's probably a producer or a musical talent uh, with just as good an ear, just as good ability, who is breaking his back in an Amazon warehouse right now. Yeah. Does he have an answer for that? Like, well, what, do you, what do you say to that? Like, that's talent. That's human talent, according to him and Gladwell, precious beyond m- measuring. That his, is- his, answer, his answer will be... My my life is meant. I'm living my life in hopes of reaching that person, so that person can free themselves, and you know, like whatever. Bullshit. Like, downside downside is your fucking house. That's a, that's very a, bullshit. That's a very not going to happen. Very not what's actually happening. Very hopeful. Very in your head. Very idealistic. I mean, it's it's kind of a you know get right with God thing. You know yes. that that people. It, inevitably do at periods of their lives part i imagine particularly when you know you see you see the horizons of mortality right <clears throat> but instead of instead of uh, turning to that turning to you know a confessional process right to to deal to do actual self-reflection he's actually kind of doing the opposite he's saying no i was actually the template all along this was the correct way to live and clearly as my life has shown this 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 was the one true way right all else that uh, that uh, that contradicts that that is the false path here um i mean i mean just to just i think you're absolutely on the money that they're they're antagonistic that's why they're so antagonistic throughout the entire pod to talking about uh to talking about human processes in the creation uh, and the evolution of art right and they insist on creation as strictly an individual pursuit that I mean, the whole transcendental meditation thing—a big cornerstone of that—is actually clearing your mind, right? Like pulling yourself out of the world, right? To tunnel into some eternal truth. Now, that's basically impossible for a human being, right? You can tr- you can try to approach it, but it's always ever the most you can do is an asymptotic approach to it, right? But it seems like the connection between that and his work here is simply to kind of almost deny the hold that the outside world has on them in their process of, of creation so that they can say that what they created was actually new, inarguably theirs, um, belonging to no one else. Um, yeah, because who said who said that? And is not the, beholden to anyone else. Right, and who said that this art that they created or this culture that they created was open for everyone? Who Who said that the goal of this is to make it available to everyone? It, it might be specifically for this particular group of people going through this particular thing. So I'm think you know, I recommend this film uh, and I would, I think this is a great counterpiece to the kind of hippy dippy idealistic stuff that Rick Rubin is engaging in, which I think is very particular to rich people <laughs> very, who live charmed lives. It's their struggle. It's their existential struggle as they get older. Now, so I'm not discounting what he's saying. I'm just saying that it's very you gotta you gotta you gotta see Rick Rubin as Rick Rubin. You can't see him as a representative of the universe. 
Like, right? he's, he's very he's flawed. If you know what you're looking for, he, he, there's flaws in the way in the way he sees the universe. Yes, and there's and there is the reason I like him is because I I under I can see those flaws and relate to those flaws too, and 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 it's very interesting to me. But I I don't I think the wrong way to read these people is that they're like representatives of some sublime transcendental truth. No, they are representatives of who they are. Right. And so I'm thinking there's this movie that I recommend. It's on Criterion Channel if anyone has access. Uh, it's called The Cry of Jazz, directed by Edward Bland, 1959. And I'll just read the, the blurb of it on Criterion. Featuring music by Sun Ra and his orchestra, the landmark semi documentary explores via a heated conversation between a group of black and white jazz aficionados. Remember, this is in the late 50s. The relationship between jazz and race in America, touching on the development of jazz as a distinctly African-American art form born of black struggle and the insidious co-option of black culture by white people, the cry of jazz proved explosively controversial, both for its frank discussion of race and its bold proclamation that, quote, jazz is dead. And I would really recommend this because there's a really great, um, there's just a lot of great things that are mentioned in this. The comparison of black versus white jazz and how they're fundamentally different, even though mm -hmm. they call it the same thing, that black jazz is a form of communication among black people about the specific consciousness that arises from being a black person in America. This is not shared. This is not something that white people can just freely take and expand upon. Once white people get into it, it becomes something different. It's different. And... I know that that's not entirely inconsistent with Rick, what Rick Rubin was saying about um, about the Beatles and stuff and how they borrowed from uh, Motown, and, uh, and but they couldn't do it, and so it became its own thing. Okay, fine. Uh, though I don't think that's what the cry of jazz is saying, but I'm just saying that um, he defends that. He, he thinks that what the Beatles did in copying uh, Motown music, there's no problem because something beautiful came from it. But, and it's kind of circular. He validates it by saying, look, they were the Beatles. So clearly that was the correct thing to do. They, we wouldn't have gotten the Beatles if they hadn't done that. Very, very so true. It's a, self yeah. it's a circular justification of the act here. And he talks about, I forget what genre it was, but saying, um, like, if I hadn't, if the if I hadn't encountered what the clash, I wouldn't have discovered a reggae or so something. I like the the logic there is just unquestioned. Like, of course, this uh, this very popular white fronted um, act is the introduction to this whole art form. Are you serious? <laughs> like, that's that was his that was his justification that their like co option of the forms of this particular genre. I don't I forgot if it's reggae or something. I barely listened to the Clash a long time ago. Uh, but he's basically saying like he discovered this whole genre of music because of this pop act, basically, and therefore that that justifies it because these these acts are basically introducing people to uh, other kinds of genres of music that they would never have otherwise uh, been exposed to. Yeah, as like, if that's the ultimate highest <laughs> level, in, you know, thing like exposing uh, the your consumer to more choices, right? Right. Uh, so we're saying a thing that uh, that we all can stand back and say maybe this this act was not the most respectful or even like studied um, studied consideration of this this genre. That's supposed to be what everyone thinks of when they think of this this genre of music now. 
that's uh that's corrupted at that point. Yeah, I I would say um you know that thing I I was I was watch I was listening to that podcast late at night and I typed this whole thing out to you on DM because I, I started understanding why I want to put I do want to put some framework about how when it bothers me uh, or why it bo- or yeah the 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 circumstance under which cultural appropriation bothers me because it doesn't always bother me there 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 are forms of it that don't bother me and I think that the problem occurs. When an art form is co-opted, an art form or cultural form, whatever it is, whether it's music, whether it's food, whether it's speech, whatever, anything, when it when something is taken from a group and then taken out of that group, and it crosses some sort of line of political antagonism, so you're taking from one faction by another faction that is actually antagonistic, and in America, I think that's. I think that the biggest, you know, when we talk about class, you know, class is defined by some line of antagonism, right? Where we are at cross purposes to each other. We are in struggle against each other. And when the borrowing crosses such a line, and in America, we know that race and class are extremely correlated. Mm -hmm. So when you cross a racial line, you are also probably crossing a class line. And so, therefore, you're crossing a line of antagonism. And let's not traffic in, you know, Ruben's hippie dippy bullshit where, you know, America doesn't have. I mean, I know he will intellectual, you know, he will acknowledge that this thing exists, but it, he doesn't live in it. He doesn't think that these things should exist, and therefore, he doesn't recognize or appreciate. He would probably that there say are that if you know, just stopped worrying about it, it would go away. Yes, it doesn't. And the more you do this, the more you take uh, something from one faction and then bring it over to the other side and let's face it you know there's always in this in america like one side is always in a position of power versus the other one so usually the taking is pretty one-sided right Mm -hmm. um the profiting is one-sided um the ability to be fully seen as a as a uh as a legitimate practitioner so to speak of that thing is 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 limited Right. Yeah. Going back to music for a second, how a um, lot of lot of Asians and Asian Americans play c- classical music instruments. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and put, dedicate a shit ton of time to it, uh, effort to it. So really studying the form, studying the function, perfecting that. And the most common the, the most common um, public reaction is to say, oh, they're just robotic. They only know. They only know the rules. There's no soul. There's no human feeling to it. Right. So they're not actually even seen as proper owners or legitimate practitioners of this. But like a shitty, a shitty, lazy um, act can just borrow like Motown and then sail at the top, and then they're considered canonically the face of Motown without stu- without knowing anything like that. That it shouldn't take too much argument to understand why that's that a person would object to that right well, yes but my from the way i'm thinking about this in terms of like crossing these lines of antagonism is that you know generally speaking uh asian people don't pick up the violin as uh, a form of protest you know yeah okay uh, I, have, I have something for that too we just yeah. passed martin luther king jr day how often did we see especially during the riots uh like in 2020 
right? Like conservative white people um, lobbying Martin Luther, MLK Jr. quotes at black people to, you know, basically delegitimize their anger at the system. Right. Right. Like say, you know, the, the cliche quote about, you know, him not wanting his children to be judged by the color of their skin and lobbying that at black people who want to talk about structural white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, oh, you're actually mm-hmm. the one being racist to me because you're judging me by the color of my skin. That's a, that's I to me, I think, a good example of exactly what you're talking about, where it's stolen from it's stolen from the, the it's complete. It's a quote completely cut off from the context he was speaking in the times he was living, who he actually was as a person and now used as a cheap uh, accusation to delegitimize a political op- to pull. To, delegitimize political opposition yes and that is inherent in this in in that process because when when the problem is the antagonism because when uh when one group takes or co-ops or appropriates the culture of another group to which it's antagonistic to the antagonism doesn't go away and i think rubin's problem here is assuming not rubin's problem but the, the the whole the whole mindset of a person like Rubin, which is not a rare mindset, right? And I think it's the mindset of people who who think that cultural appropriation never presents a problem. It is actually the source of all culture. It's the source of artistic inspiration. Who doesn't borrow from everyone else? You know. Yeah. Well, the obviously. problem is when it when it crosses that line of antagonism, is that invariably the antagonism doesn't actually go away. What happens is that the group in power uses that thing that it took against in furtherance of itself yeah. and against mm-hmm. the group from which it took it. Yep. The antagonism is not resolved through cultural taking. It's not resolved by saying like, okay, let's listen to the same music and oh, you know, maybe we'll start playing the same. We'll start pra- we'll start uh, learning jazz ourselves. That doesn't make the issue of class and race antagonisms go away. It, I don't see any evidence historically that that's the case. So, uh, you know, I think uh, if anything, uh, maybe it does open the door for there to be maybe a little bit more porosity in that antagon- line of antagonism so that maybe some black people or some Asian people can cross it and join the other side or whatever. But that antag- that class antagonism or that political antagonism or whatever it is, it's still there. It doesn't get resolved because we listen to the same music, you know? And so I think that's the problem is this, this belief that if we just shared uh, or the same aesthetic beliefs, then everything would be fine. And because I think that's what happens to someone like a Rick Rubin uh, or privileged people is that everything just boils down to our individual tastes. And that we think that the problem is that we just don't appreciate each other's tastes enough because these are aesthetic people. These are aesthetes. Well, that's, it all comes that, down to enjoyment. It all comes down to does this sound good? Does this taste good? You know, and I think that's one of the problems. Like, for example, sorry, I, I'm ranting, but I, I just want to get this one point in about food. And I've noticed this about people who really eat like Chinese people because they are Chinese, and people who kind of dabble in Chinese food because they like the way it tastes. Is that if you really, really stick to Chinese cuisine and eating as a culture, cultural cuisine, it is not all about taste. A lot of it is really bland. A lot Mm -hmm. of it tastes like shit because (laughs) it's not just about taste. It's also about health. And it's about like, it's about the 
the ideas about eating that go way beyond just the taste, but like yeah, the what act you're of supposed balancing to eat. what you're supposed to eat, when you're supposed to eat it, how exactly. you're supposed to eat it. Yeah, yes. There's Who's supposed to eat what when? Yeah, how do you eat it based on like you know what do you eat like after you've given birth, or mm-hmm. who pays for the meal, you know, yeah. or like um, you know who eats first, you know what do you talk about when you're eating. You know, all these things are part of food culture, and I think in a way much more important than how much umami we can squeeze into a single bite of xiaolongbao or whatever. You know what <laughs> I mean? It's and actually so- nihilistic, and this is why we get to aesthetic extremes so easily. Like, you notice any kind of trend, eventually it goes overboard, right? Like, like people just start – if it's just about pure, like, sensorial, like, sensorial gratification – Right. Inevitably, like you end up getting really straying really far off track. Yes. Right. Like start cramming like truffles and just a shit ton of salt or whatever. Mm-hmm. So like this thing that you're making suddenly just tastes like Technicolor. Like, <laughs> yeah. you and know, that, and, and don't you think that's the fetishization of form over function? Yeah. So I think we're craving that function, but all we are supposed, but all we are given is form. So right. you have to lend meaning to it somehow. And usually the only way you can do it is just by more. This is the end of part one for this week's episode. Part two, as usual, will be available on our Patreon feed. If you want to join the Patreon as a supporter, go over to patreon.com slash planamag.